podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Today's show, I'm really excited about, and I want to tell you why before I get to the actual show. You know, in my everyday life, I see so many stories, like the one you are about to hear, yet I've always struggled to bring them onto the show and onto the blog. I'm not going to talk about like the details of why it's difficult to like document these stories of success. You know, generally on the podcast, we just interview people who are successful and that's pretty good. But today we want to try something different. We want to try to bring you the story and how these things actually play out for people that are changing their lives through building businesses on the ground. All right, so I'm not going to give away too much of the story. We're just going to start at square one. Today we're going to dig deep into the creation of a company called Splitly and the characters who started it. Splitly offers a SaaS or software as a service product to Amazon sellers. To me, this story is really about What's possible when you put yourself amongst people who can inspire and support you, but also hold you accountable? And I'd like to hear what you think about it. We're going to be posting the show notes at tropicalmba.com slash splitly. Okay, so here's where the story begins with a guy named James Andrews, who is a member of our private network, the DC. I first met James in the Philippines a few years back when he was working on his first business, which is called iClan. So iClan was a product which basically allowed gamers to manage their clans and communities, kind of like a private Facebook for gamers. It was something he started on the side when he was living in London, but all the while he was plotting his escape. It was definitely in December 2012. I was sat outside the train station waiting for the train. It's 7 a.m. in the morning. It's dark outside and it's snowing and I'm freezing cold. And I'm listening to your podcast along with the Empire Flippers podcast as well. And I'm thinking I need to be out in Southeast Asia. I need to be having the freedom and flexibility. I need to have that money recurring income coming in so I can go and travel wherever I want to go. So I didn't really have the courage to kind of quit my job. I decided to keep my job because this was like my first project. I didn't know how it was going to go. In six months time, it might not even be making any money. And I was constantly afraid of that. I was working in London for a good few months after that. I would finish my work at 6pm. I'd rush home, get on my laptop, start working on my online stuff until 2am in the morning. And it's again snowing and I'm on my balcony in London and looking up at the sky and seeing the snowfall on my face with a coffee and I'm still up trying to work. It's exciting. How long did that go on before you were like, I can't sustain it? Actually, I could have probably sustained it for quite some time. It really kind of hit me when I was made more money online than what I was working in London. That's when I knew, well, I just need to optimize my time and I need to focus on what wherever I can deliver the most amount of value, right? I quit my job. After I was confident enough to know that I could sustain myself out in the big wide world by myself with my internet business. 
James left the UK in 2013 with 5,000 British pounds in the bank and some monthly income coming in from iClan. He kicked around having fun in Thailand for a few months before heading to a place he'd heard about on the Empire Flippers podcast, and that's hosted by Joe Magnotti and Justin Cook. And for those of you who don't know, it's a show that generally about entrepreneurship, but also they focus on buying and selling web properties or websites. And I highly recommend that you check it out. Now, that city was Davao in the Philippines, which is actually where I caught up with James recently for this very interview. And how would you describe Davao City for someone who hasn't been here before? I would say Davao is probably, it's quite a messy city. It does have its charm. I think the best thing about Davao or the Philippines just in general are the people. They're very welcoming towards foreigners. You can just rock up and if you've got any problems and stuff, like the Filipino people are always going to be really helpful towards you. So you show up to Davao and there's all these entrepreneurs there. You know, how did that change your mindset? Well, first of all, it was the first time I actually networked with these other entrepreneurs. I was so surprised that there are actually, there's a lot of people doing exactly the same thing as me because I was roaming around in Thailand for a few months and I also went to Malaysia and didn't do any networking in either of those places. And I rock up here and it's just like, wow, there's this guy here who does copywriting. I don't even know what copywriting is. Like, I didn't know you could actually make a lot of money doing that. And he starts telling me about all of the tricks that you can do with SEO and stuff. And I'm like, well, why don't I start doing that in my business? You know, so you start hearing all of these new little tips and tricks and stuff and you can implement that in your own business. And that's been really helpful. I remember at that time, you were working really hard and taking all this good advice that you're getting from people. And it was like every other week, it was like, this is the week where I'm hiring like two new staff members and I'm training them. And then like the next week we'd show up to dinner and you'd be like, this is the week that I'm refining my email funnels. That was about more or less like a year. That was definitely a year of learning, just learning. You know, it's one thing that I've learned is to always know what you don't know. And if there's something you don't know and you get an idea of somebody and you start thinking about it, then you don't really know how that's going to play out in your own business, but you've got to do it in order to find out. How did it affect your business? There were quite some good months. It grew quite quickly. It still grew every month. But then I was networking all the time. and I sort of felt like I was in the region at the time and I would kind of come back to Davao. And you always seemed like you had gotten the most done, but the business was fundamentally the same. It sort of felt to me like it turned into a grind for you. Yeah, I guess it did turn into a bit of a grind for me. I've been working on the project for such a long time as well, don't forget. So it's very easy to start getting bored of a project. But all the people that were saying to me, oh, yeah, you can double your business by doing your emails. They're probably good at doing marketing. And you always hear about the good things. That you always hear about the successes. You don't really hear about the failures. I'm sure that there are hundreds of thousands of people on this planet who have set up an email funnel and they have failed miserably, right? Just to set the scene, it's kind of this year of like us sitting around at dinner and like Joe and Justin and everybody's just handing out ideas and you're so receptive to all these ideas. And I thought it was cool, but also worth noting that after a year of implementing them, you didn't have a materially different business than you had when you stepped off the plane. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it was the same business. It grew by a few thousand dollars recurring revenue, but it didn't turn into 100K a month. That would be life-changing, right? It didn't change my life, essentially. Feeling slightly meh about the state of his business, James did what many of us would do in that situation. He called up a friend to have a drink. So they went down to this place that's pretty well known in Davao called 
Huckleberries. It's a nice bar. It's a kind of upscale bar in Davao. As upscale as you get, which means it's cheap. <laughs> Dave Huss, who's been on this podcast before, he was telling me about his problems about doing research for t-shirts. He sells t-shirts online, but he doesn't know which t-shirts are selling well and which ones aren't. So he was searching on Facebook, and Google, and Pinterest, Twitter, a bunch of other websites. He had a VA to do this. He had spreadsheets. And the whole system was just a complete mess. It's just really difficult to research t-shirts. So I'm just like, well, I'm sure somebody must have built a search engine for t-shirts by now. I'm sure of it. And I was right. Somebody else did. But I thought, yeah, I can do better than this. So you get this spark of inspiration. And what do you do about it? So uh, after about a week of thinking about the technical solution, how I'm going to market this thing, the features that I could put inside the SaaS tool, I decided to go for it. And... I sit inside my condo in Davao for two weeks. I don't go out. I have a maid who cooks for me. At the time, I had a girlfriend, so she just comes around and keeps me company when I'm feeling lonely. I was working 12-hour days, and I was really grinding this thing out. I wanted to build an MVP. What's an MVP? A minimum viable product. A minimum viable product is something that could potentially sell, but it's clunky around the edges. You haven't quite fine-tuned the product yet, and it's just designed to test the market. And so after two weeks, did you have your minimum viable product? I did. I launched it. And did you go back to Dave and tell him about it? I did. And his first reaction was, oh my gosh, I can't believe you built this thing. Wow. And did he become a customer? I gave it to him for free. (laughs) It took me about one week to get my first sale. And how did you get it? I just told people about it. Dave knew some people who were selling t-shirts. I just told people about it and word started to spread. And how much were you charging for it? At the time, about $8 a month. Fast forward to when we bumped into each other at DCBKK that year. You rock up to me at the closing party and say, hey, I just built this new thing. I made 10 grand last month. That's right. Grew quite quickly. I was very, very happy with myself. It was like first time getting up on a surfboard. Many listeners of this show have decided that 2017 is the year they go full-time on their entrepreneurial pursuits, and they're choosing to join other TMBA listeners to help accelerate each other's progress. They're doing that through a mastermind, which is simply a small group of like minds with similar goals. Masterminds can help you to take consistent action towards your goals and build relationships with those doing the same. The only problem is they can be a bit time-consuming to put together. That's why we're helping to take away all that hassle. You can register today at tropicalmba.com slash TMBA masterminds and receive your mastermind placement in just a few weeks. That offer will end March 7th. So if you're interested, act fast. You can find all the info at tropicalmba.com slash TMBA masterminds. Now, James's attendance at our annual Bangkok event DCBKK in 2015, the one where he was so pumped about how well his SaaS comparison tool was doing. I remember the whole conversation. It was awesome. That tool was called T-Grasp. That's going to be crucial later in the story, but we're not going to jump ahead. Before we get to that, some months earlier, James had another encounter that would turn out to be central to the creation of the subject of this show, the SaaS tool Splitly. I'm Andrew Brown. And I am one of the co-founders for Splitly, which is a piece of Amazon software to help sellers optimize their listings. Yeah, so I met Andy. He's from Ireland. He'd been living in China for three years, trying to 
do some business there, which didn't go so well, he said. So tell me a little bit about that interaction. I originally thought that he was a drunk, <laughs> epic failure. What is he doing with his life? It just seemed like a backpacker traveling around. He was working for his family's business at the time after he failed to do some business in China. When I was 23, I got it into my head that outsourcing was a big thing and China was up and coming and I just delusionally saved up a bit of money and went out there, learned Chinese and tried to set up like a web shop. That was my plan. What happened? Well, I didn't have a clue what I was doing and I had no one to talk to. Actually, it's one of the things that I, the biggest change that happened to me was I met a friend in Chengdu in China and he told me about the Dynamite Circle, Tropical NBA, believe it or not. I actually started listening to the podcast a bit and then I said, Ash, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to do it. I'm going to head to Chiang Mai. The difference there was that the next time I started tried to do a business, I was surrounded by people that could give me advice and it just made the world a difference. But when this story starts, we met in Davao. So what brought you there? So for the first year when I was over there, I was still just working for the family business and I'm just writing code for their website. So it was like a remote position. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you heard about Davao through the Empire Flippers? Yeah. So I wanted to go to the Philippines and I didn't know where. I met those guys and they were saying, oh, you should check out Davao. One of my stipulants is I want to, I need a, like a co-working space, preferably a few people around like that are, that are into business and stuff like that. So you show up to Davao, and what are your first impressions of the place? Uh, I thought it was an absolute dump. <laughs> yeah, I know, I really didn't like it. I mean, my first experience was I come out of the airport, and I was late at night, and I wanted to uh, get some food, and the only place that I found was Minute Burger, where they're squirting cheese out of a tube, and it was really, I was unimpressed. It grew on me, you know, so it's not, not a bad spot. <laughs> I remember, like, this was basically 2015, and at the beginning, like, you were very unclear of what you were going to do. At that time, what were you thinking, like, your future would look like? Oh, yeah, I tried to cut down on expenses. I moved from, a, like, a decent place to literally the ghetto. I had to move out after two weeks. People were telling me it wasn't safe there and I had to leave. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like? Was it that bad? There's no cars. You have to go down these windy streets and then there's a back area and everyone's looking at you like, what the hell are you doing there? Every time I'd come home in the evening, there'd be like loads of cockroaches. I'd have to run around my house like smacking them with a shoe. How much did you pay for this every month? It was like 8,000, I think. 8,000 peso. It's like less than $200. Yeah, it was like 160 euro, I think. My impression here was at the beginning, this friendship didn't sound like it had the makings of a dynamic and professional and potentially life-changing business partnership. We were just hanging out every weekend. I was drinking a lot back then, so I was going out partying with him every weekend, sometimes during the week as well. So what were your favorite bars at the time? Well, there's only two clubs. And speaking of my impressions of Davao, oh man, that was the first time I went into that nightclub, not Echelon, the other one. I just couldn't believe it. It was worse than the worst nightclub in my tiny little village in Ireland. It looks like a, you know, a country disco is what, what we'd call it back in Ireland. So it's like a dark little hole in the ground and kind of smelly. Obviously the usual bad music, but that's kind of common across Asia. So no, no surprise there. Nothing nice about it. Like there's no nice seats, there's really cheap booze. So that's a bonus. What was the crowd like there? Like when you meet people, what were they like? The only reason we're going out is to meet girls, really. That's just, that was it. We're single. So that's, that's the only reason we were going there. Are you guys talking much about business during this time frame at all? Nah, not really. Not much. Just girls? Yeah, I think so. I wasn't doing really business. I was just writing some code and James was doing his thing. So it didn't really come up much. It wasn't until I started selling on Amazon. That kind of changed everything, really, and, and put a more of a business head on me and a smarter approach to things. So why did you start the business on Amazon? I've tried to do business twice and failed, as again, I just didn't know what I was doing. But I've always wanted my own business, and I've always been thinking in that, in that way. Amazon, because my friend basically showed me how much money he was making on Amazon. 
actually, there was a thing called the Amazing Selling Machine, and he did the very first version of that when it came out, and he paid $5,000 to do the course. And when he told me about it, I just laughed. I was like, oh, you've just been scammed. Another internet scam. Well done. He knew nothing about how to make money online. Well, I had to eat my words because like and I, a year later, he shows me his bank account. I'm like, oh, all right, okay, maybe there's something to this. And what kind of money are we talking about? I think he was make, making well over 100 grand a year at the time. I can't remember exactly, but it was, it was enough to impress me anyway. So you then decided to follow in his footsteps. What was the store that you ended up opening or product you ended up selling? I'm more of a geek than a, like a marketer. So I was kind of worried about competition. Like I didn't understand how you could really, really make your product stand out, that sort of thing. So I did a lot of research and I found a niche that nobody wanted to do, which is plant pots, actually. Okay. It's not really private label. It broke some of the rules and everything. And the return isn't that high, but it's much easier to enter the market and not be beaten down by someone better than you. So that's what I'd picked. Yeah, it worked, actually. So I started making some money off that. And then I just was coding less and less. I'm always thinking about ways of making things better with by programming. And so then after you know about 10 months of doing that, that's when I got the idea that you could do split testing, basically. Many of the listeners of this show are familiar with split testing. It's basically tossing up two different versions of the same product page and seeing which one performs better. And now more advanced tools can help you make better judgments and progress to better designs faster. Essentially, that's what Splitly does, but for Amazon product listings. So in December 2015, Andrew pinged James on Facebook Messenger. It was just an idea. And I was going to start doing it. And I just told him, I mean, he's a mate, right? I'm not going to think he's going to steal it on me or anything like that. I just told him, you know, this is what I was going to do. I wasn't thinking he was going to want to partner with me. It was really just like part of the conversation. Like, what are you up to, man? What are you doing? Yeah, okay, I'm doing this now. And then I think what James did was he spoke to an Amazon seller. That Amazon seller said, oh, that's a really good idea. That's brilliant. No one else is doing it. And then James came back to me and said, do you want want to partner then? And how did you feel about that? I didn't think too long about it, actually. I gave it about 10 or 20 minutes thought and then said, yeah, let's do it. Because at this stage, I'd seen what James was doing. I'd seen him do, okay, he started off doing iClan, and then I saw him launch like an MVP for T-Grasp, and he did. He had it out in about two weeks, and so I was like, all right, I mean, I don't have the experience here. You know, we want to be fast. This guy's going to help. And did you guys have any negotiations in terms of equity or anything like that? We just mutually agreed 50-50 was the best thing to do. And so you just start building it, or what was the next step look like? I then put T-Grasp on hold and started building software for Amazon A-B testing and optimization. Uh, How long did it take? It took quite a long time, actually. It's a very difficult thing to do. I had to relearn some of the maths that I haven't done in quite some time since university. And Amazon's MWS or API is quite difficult sometimes. And what's an API? Application Programming Interface. Is that basically how you can communicate, get information from Amazon in an automated way? Exactly. The sellers just authorize our software, and then we can go inside their account and perform updates. Is it a similar kind of situation where you're like locking yourself in your room and not leaving to build the software, or how did it go? It was a strange situation, actually, because at the time I was making more money than I'd ever been made in my entire life. I'd got iClan on the go. T-Grasp on the go. Now I'm starting up a third one. So I was kind of celebrating the successes of my other software while like still trying to plan ahead for this new one. And one thing I've learned now is the more things you've got going on, the more difficult it is to actually get things out quickly. You always have these things that keep cropping up in every single product that you've got going on. So you and Andy build the software. When did you take off the password, so to speak, and let the public see the software? 
I believe that was in February. So it took a good two months to build. February 2016. That's right. Tell me about the day that you released it. We released it and then the whole thing broke. It was terrible. Actually, it was a nightmare for me. Up until that point, we'd had like two or three seller accounts to basically play around with. You know, friends that we'd begged to let us test our software on their account. No one wanted to do a beta, so we just launched. And then I called an old friend that I met in Chiang Mai, Matt Ward, and he actually had a podcast. He was like, oh, that's great, because he, he, he just happened to be really into optimization. And he was looking for a product like this. So he just started promoting it. And so we got a bunch of people signing up very quickly. And problems with my code, basically. Oh, it was really, really stressful. Really, really, really stressful. What were those two weeks like? Well, I was in Chiang Mai and James was in the Philippines. And I was basically just, God, I think I was smoking at the time. I was chain smoking, basically. I was so stressed, just sitting on the balcony, trying to taking breaks and then going back in and trying to figure out what was going wrong. So like customers emailing you or are you just like sitting with some status screen, like watching everything break? James builds the actual website. And what I was building was the code that talks to Amazon and does the updates and all this kind of stuff. That stuff happens on like on a timing. And every day at midnight on Amazon time, all the updates would happen. And then I go in and go, okay, why didn't this work? Why do they fail? You know, things are failed. Things are going wrong. And so I'd have to go in and check all these logs and try and figure out what's going on. And then the emails would come in and they'd be like, oh, this is broken. That is broken. And oh, God. So you'd have these like 24-hour cycles. Yes, exactly. Every day I'd be like, okay, here it comes again. The update's coming again. <laughs> I was telling James, like, we have to just, you know, stop signing people up. Let's just slow the whole thing down and try and fix things. And James was like, nope, nope, we've launched now. <laughs> Full steam ahead. He was correct, actually, because we did, we've, you know, I didn't cause any damage to anybody. Most of the issues were actually in validating the updates. So stuff like that. It was actually fine in the end. We just kept going and ironed all the bugs in. When things got sorted out and like you guys got to kind of look at this, were you guys like giggling with glee? Like all of a sudden you just put something on the internet and people were paying you a bunch of money to use it. Well, I was. James has, that was his third successful SaaS product. He was just thinking, all right, here's another one. Let's make it as big as possible. After our initial launch, we were finding it hard to get our name out there and sign up more customers. So there's like a kind of a stagnant lull, which was a bit disheartening. We quickly realized that a lot of customers don't trust us at all. We don't have any email list. We don't have any assets that we can deploy. We don't have some nice company name. We're just a couple of developers who are in the Philippines or in Southeast Asia, spending our money on alcohol and going to the beach. And it was difficult to market this thing. We hit scalability issues from a technical side, but we also hit scalability issues on a marketing standpoint as well. And at the time, we were the first people to create an A-B testing tool for Amazon. We really wanted to make sure that we were number one. We were the go-to guys for A-B testing on Splitly. So we got an interesting email from a company called Seller Labs, and they really wanted to partner with us. They're an established software company for Amazon. They've got other software tools out there, and they've got an access to our potential ideal customers. And we originally declined, but then we just realized we can't market this ourselves. We're not marketers. We don't know what we're doing with marketing. We've never marketed something to a massive scale before. When they say partner, what did they mean by that? They were quite easygoing. They either wanted to buy shares or equity in the business, or they wanted to have some kind of like good affiliate arrangement, but they would have like the first option to buy in the future. You go back to them and what do you say when you 
actually we get on our skype call with them over a couple of weeks we, we go backwards and forwards with them kind of getting towards some kind of deal we realized that we wanted to make a deal with somebody and they eventually made us an offer to buy a significant portion of the equity for a reasonable amount of cash we were very tempted we were very close to picking them and saying yes we want to partner with you must have been more money than you've ever seen right it was a, it was a decent amount <laughs> enough to make me smile i think you don't smile very much, so. No, I don't. Okay, so these legitimate sounding business people put a bunch of money in front of you, and what do you do? I email Greg from Jungle Scout. All right, I'm Greg Mercer. I am the founder of Jungle Scout, which is a suite of tools for Amazon sellers, including product research, profit analytics, split testing for Amazon sellers, as well as email follow-up sequences. Now, to say that Greg's company had grown a lot over the last three years would be a huge understatement. He started out as an individual seller on Amazon, but his company Jungle Scout in the last few years has absolutely taken off to be one of the most well-known and respected tools for Amazon sellers in the world. Now, James got in contact with Greg because four months earlier, James had sat down with him at a mastermind table at, you guessed it, DCBKK 2015. At that time, Splitly wasn't yet in existence. And James was spending his time mostly successfully scaling that new product he was so excited about, T-Grasp. And just a little bit of background, because we're going to talk a lot about DCBKK Mastermind Day. That's the Friday before our conference, and it's basically an intense day-long session where attendees get the chance in small, relevant groups to raise ideas and specific problems and get feedback with their peers. And it all takes place basically before the main conference. You kind of enter the story of Splitly at the 2015 DCBKK event. Do you remember why you wanted to come to the event? I just started traveling and became a digital nomad, like just the beginning of that year. So DCBKK is in the fall. I think I started that January, February. Up until that point, I hadn't been kind of like surrounded or interacted with that many like digital nomads yet. I'd meet a few at co-working spaces we'd go to. But I kind of want to get more involved just like in the communities, these other like-minded entrepreneurs. Did it hurt for you to buy that ticket or was it like, I'll just do it and see how it works out? Yeah, it's not cheap. I don't think I had any hesitations. Like I'm never like scared to invest like in my like education, I guess like invest kind of like in growing my network. I think that always like repays itself tenfold. And at the event, there's an extra day before the event starts. That's basically like a work day. Did you have any decision making process as to whether you would attend that day or not? I don't think I hesitate. I think I hopped right on that. When you're in these smaller groups of people, it's much easier to like form more like lasting relationships or like get to know people better. Whereas like if you're just in a big room with a couple of hundred other people, it's a little bit harder to meet people. So I think it was kind of a no brainer for me to join the mastermind. Do you remember anything about that mastermind table that you were at? I was mainly with other software type entrepreneurs. James was at the table with me. And I think everyone at the table had some kind of software application. Some were in SaaS, some like had like little WordPress plugins, but it was a pretty like relevant group of people. I had never done a mastermind before at the DC BKK event. I guess probably I was just too cheap the year before. Because it's extra money to come. Exactly. But now I realize like it's absolutely 100%. Like the ROI on these events are astronomical. It was kind of like my first mastermind and I was very nervous. I was sat around a table who were infinitely much more successful than what I was. But I think the important thing is, is like Greg is the founder of Jungle Scout. He was at my table, which is an Amazon research tool. And there I am sitting with a t-shirt research tool. So 
kind of connect. Very easy to do that because we've got very similar products, but non-competing. And he was definitely an invaluable contact and also just a really nice guy as well to talk to. What was your experience like in the mastermind? How did you present your business problem when you were there? I think the thing I was mostly looking for was how do I continue the growth? I was doing quite well. It was growing, but I didn't know how well it was going to grow. It had only been launched for maybe four or five months since then and was doing about 10K a month profit and kind of didn't get a feel for what is the the maximum this business can go to. Is it going to go to 100K a month? Is it going to go to even higher? What sort of things did people at the table tell you at the time? A lot of the feedback was to start networking with more people who are involved in the t-shirt industry because these guys are going to be the ones that are going to have the most influence on the sellers and also give me potentially more customers. This research tool, it's a little bit risky because you're taking t-shirt designs from other websites and you're putting them on your own website, which does have some legal implications. I didn't really know whether the business was even like a long-term viable business. What was your first impression of James? Do you remember? James was, he still has his, a site that is essentially product research for selling t-shirts or like finding out like niches or like the styles of t-shirts that would sell well on the internet. So I was like, okay, like I have a product research tool for Amazon sellers. These are really actually like quite similar. We're both targeting probably like a similar like demographics of like entrepreneurial type people. So like right away, like James and I like hit it off pretty good. And so that was like the most like relevant piece of software, the person who had like the most relevant business to myself. He kind of stuck out to me. I remember him, whereas I couldn't name like everyone at the table. So let's return to Splitly. DCBKK has come and gone. It's now February 2016, and James and Andrew have together created and launched what was turning into be a really promising product for Amazon sellers, Splitly. But they've run into problems of scale. They haven't got enough customers. They haven't got the contacts or profile to generate the hundreds more that they need. And out of the blue... A potential investor, Seller Labs, has come knocking on their door. But that investor, they don't really know who they are. And that was the moment that got them thinking. Would it be better to approach someone that James had gotten to know personally? Someone like Greg Mercer of Jungle Scout. I just thought, well, we've got one decent offer. Let's see what's out there. We may as well. Got nothing to lose. What did your email say? I was just completely honest with them. I said, hey, Greg, Seller Labs made us an offer. This is the amount. This is the amount of equity. We're probably going to do it. Are you interested? And the basic idea of this partnership is that Greg had so many customers in his business that needed your product as well. So if you guys partnered, even though you had half as many shares, those shares would be more valuable almost immediately. Yeah, that's right. Just the mathematics of the whole scenario made sense. If we can get more than double the amount of customers we can by ourselves, then it's going to be worth us giving away half of our shares. So at the time, I had two different SaaS applications for Amazon sellers. I had one, the product research called Jungle Scout. At the time, I had another one called Review Kick, which has been rebranded as Jump Send. They're both tools for Amazon sellers. So James contacted me. The first email I ever got from was him just telling me about the product. It's like a split testing tool for Amazon sellers. Long story short, like not too far after that, he was like, hey, like I'm looking to sell roughly half of the company. He's like, there's someone else who's interested, but I want to chat with you about it first. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, let's hop on a call and chat about it. What kind of emotion goes through you when someone sends you an email like that? Because I don't think I've ever received an email like that. Was that just yeah, a normal thing for you to get an email like that? or? 
I wouldn't say like a normal thing, but it's kind of funny because at the time I was actually thinking like, okay, what kind of like growth strategies do we have? It's pretty costly and time consuming to develop like these SaaS apps. I'm not a developer. So, you know, I have to hire developers for anything I want to get made. Good developers make a lot of money. They're really expensive. For a few months before that, I was kind of looking at potentially purchasing like other SaaS applications that would kind of like fit into our suite nicely. Because at the time, you know, we had a whole bunch of customers. The services that our applications provided were pretty like niche, like very one specific set of problems, what they solve, you know? So that was kind of like one of my growth strategies. So when I got the email from him, I was like, okay, perfect. Like this works out well. Like I actually had, I never even thought of split testing like Amazon listings. It's one of those things like you kind of kick yourself for a little bit. When he emailed me, I was like, okay, cool. Like this could potentially work out really well. You know, like he has a pretty cool application. We have a whole bunch of customers. Those things could meet up nicely. And when he showed you the offer that this other buyer was making to them, what was your first thought in your mind? So essentially like how I thought about it was like, okay, it didn't have that many users yet. I forget exactly how many, maybe like a couple hundred. I don't even know if it was that many. I don't really remember, but it wasn't that many users yet. So I was like, okay, like the business is like way overvalued if you just think about a typical multiple for like how much profit a company's making. But I was like, okay, let's think about the opportunity cost here. If I were to build this, it'd probably cost me like the same amount as what I'm buying like half this company for. And the truth of the matter is, it's just not going to happen if I wanted to build this myself. Like I don't have the mental energy. Like we had a relatively small team at the time, maybe like 15 employees or so. And they were very busy with just like millions of other tasks, right? So I mean, the truth of the matter is, if I, like if I didn't get in on this, it just wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to build like a split testing tool, at least like not in like the near future. I was just kind of like running all the numbers. I think like we had the cash at the time, you know, it's not like I had to like take out a loan to do this. It's more so just like, okay, like how quickly do I think I can get back my investment? Yeah. And there's some other things to think about too. You know, it's like, okay, if they're like tied into our suite of tools, like does that bring on like extra liability? Like if their application were to get hacked, would they come after our whole company now? Like that could be a, a potential problem. Or maybe like if they just kind of got some like bad press for whatever reason, you know? So it's like, okay, like there could potentially be some downsides to this too. So those are kind of all the things that are going through my head. How long did it take you to like, send them over an offer was it casual on the phone like yeah i'll do it or did you like write it up we originally spoke and i don't think i like kind of gave him an offer for like a few weeks or maybe like a month later so like, i kind of just like thought about it and you know just like get busy and then he kind of like emailed again it's like hey i got a formal offer from your biggest competitor do you want to talk about this again because like if you're not interested we're going to go ahead and take this one and it's like all right well now i guess i really have to decide <laughs> and what did your offer look like so we more or less just like match the offer like of the other company. You know, if they came back and said like, you know, like you have to give us like X amount of more dollars, I think I probably just like would have let it pass. Some selling points I had for them was it's like we have like a much larger customer base and like what our like biggest competitor is. So like theoretically, we have a good relationship with a lot more Amazon sellers. Hopefully, you know, we'd be able to get a lot more customers into your app quicker than what like our competitor would. He made us an offer that's exactly the same. Because I'd met Greg before, I kind of had that personal relationship with him already and decided to partner with Greg instead. It must be kind of mind-numbing to go from you and your friend having an idea to a few months later, somebody offering you like life-changing money to be a partner in the business. Yeah, it was interesting. I'd never gone through an acquisition like that before and didn't know what to do. Andy's brother-in-law had raised investment from some business in Ireland or whatnot and we were bouncing emails backwards and forwards with him quite a bit just to try to get some advice on the whole situation because we don't know what we're doing right 
we have no idea how to negotiate. We have no idea how the whole thing goes down. So the idea between your partnership is really that because of your customer base, you know, you come in for approximately half the shares, the equity value of all the shares could more than double more or less overnight. That's sort of the promise of a deal like this. How has it worked out? Yes, I think it's worked out really well. Of course, like you always want to be growing faster than what you are. But I think just within the first like few weeks, I forget how long, like we doubled the customer base. So it's like, okay, like you guys sold half your company, but within the first month or however long it was, it's like now you have twice as much customers. So like your business theoretically like twice as valuable, right? So I think like right off the bat, we got them like a great boost that I'm sure they were stoked about. I guess another reason like the partnership was good is because like we do have like a really strong marketing team. My background would be more like marketing than the tech side of it. Whereas Andy and James, they're both developers, right? They're both like good at the tech side of it. So I think that was like another part of it, right? It's like they knew very well how to continue to build out the application, make it strong from like the technical standpoint. But they probably were also like looking at guidance from like the marketing side. So it's like we have like a proven track record. It must have hurt the right to check though. Yeah, it did for sure. <laughs> it always does, right? I guess like I'm just like a pretty like data-driven dude. It's like, all right, I'm just going to look at the numbers here. This makes sense. I have the cash. Like I'm always looking for like investments anyway. So it's like for me, it wasn't really like that emotional. We've come along. That's it. That's the end of the ep. Well, it's not the end of the story. It's just the end of the episode. Greg might not be that emotional about this situation, but I was. I was like excited to do a podcast like this. And the reason is, is that this is how it happens. You know, when I met these guys, like they didn't know that this was going to happen to them. They put themselves around smart people and they worked hard. And so what's the lesson from all that? I don't know. I don't have any lessons, but uh, (laughs) it's okay to be not sure about how things are going to work out. You know, you're not always going to be able to map everything out that there's some key things you need to get in place. You need to be around a good peer group. And if you're not, you're really hurting your chances and you need to be focused. And these guys were all focused on having a successful business and that attracts like attract like. And now you got the story and there's a lot more. I'm sure that these guys are going to get up to. I don't know. I hope you guys like this. I really enjoyed doing it. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We're going to post the show notes to this one at tropicalmba.com slash splitly. And let us know your thoughts. We'll be in the comments and we'll be back next Thursday morning. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.